false. In fact, how many of us remember that historically here in America, just a few centuries ago, we found that it was not a problem to have slavery be a prominent aspect of our society. It was something that was, by some, looked at in apathy. People could care less, but it was okay. It was tolerated. And in some cases, it was people's livelihood. It was something that they literally uh, were engaged in fully. Just because the majority has an opinion does not mean that that majority is always right. And as we look at the text this morning, one of the things we're going to find is just because the majority said one thing does not mean that that opinion was correct. If you have your Bibles, turn to Numbers chapter 13. Numbers chapter 13. And in this text, we're going to be looking at specifically what it is that happens when the majority is wrong. What happens when the majority is wrong? Because the reality is, many of us, we follow the status quo. Many of us follow the popular opinion of our day. And without realizing it, we get swept in the winds of popular vote in our country. Before we know it, we get swept in to worldly philosophies that are contrary to Scripture. And before we know it, we've strayed so far from what the Word of God says that we no longer realize we've been so far away from the standard. This morning, as we look at here in this text, just because something is, is accepted by the majority does not mean it's right. But here's the problem here that we're going to find out. As we look at the majority view here, it's not just devastating to those that held it, it's devastating to those that were influenced by it as well. We're going to be looking at the initiation in verses 1 through 16, the instruction in verses 17 through 20, the investigation, verses 21 through 25, the apprehension, verses 26 through 33, the termination, verses 26 through 37, and the preservation, in verse 38 of chapter 14. One of the things that you'll find here as we've been working through the book of Exodus, and now we're, we're hitting numbers, is that you see a constant struggle in the leadership with the people. The people want one thing, the, le the leadership has to go back to God and ask for help in dealing with the situation that's going on. It's just like in any situation that any leader faces, except this is two million people complaining at one time. This is not the typical CEO of a company who's got other executives under him that are really going to be able to solve certain problems. These are people in a wilderness with many times no option but to turn to the Lord for the answer. And as we read this morning, you're going to see clearly that just because things seem a certain way doesn't mean that we always look through the proper lens. Just because we see reality for what it is doesn't mean that there isn't another truth behind it that God is trying to show us. So the, the first thing that we're going to look at, the initiation here in verses 1 through 16, if you have your Bibles, Numbers 13, 1 through 16, we're going to read the verses. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord, all of them men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were their names. I apologize for the, the pronounce, pronouncing of all these names ahead of time. From the tribe of Reuben, Shamua, the son of Zakur. From the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Horai. From the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Zephaniah. From the tribe of Issachar, Egal, the son of Joseph. From the tribe of Ephraim, 
Hoshea the son of Nun, from the tribe of Benjamin, Paltai the son of Rufu, Raphu, from the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel the son of Sodai, from the tribe of Joseph, that is from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadai the son of Susai, from the tribe of Dan, Amiel the son of Gemali, from the tribe of Asher, Sethur the son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi the son of Bophsai, from the tribe of Gad, Geul the son of Machai. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hoshea the son of Nun, Joshua. So what we have here, in fact, is a response from the Lord based on a request. If you have your Bibles, in Deuteronomy 1, verses 20 through 23, I want you to see something here. This is actually in reference to this text. And what you see in, in some of the, the reading here in the Decalogue is certain stories are reiterated and repeated. Uh, but look at verses number 20 through 23. It says here in Deuteronomy 1, 20 through 23, it says, And I said to you, you come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not be afraid or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up and the cities into which we shall come. And the plan pleased me well, so I took twelve of your men one from each tribe. So what Moses has here is a request from the people. He brings it to the Lord, and the Lord responds with, go ahead and do this. Go ahead and send spies to, to survey the land. Moses sends spies out from each tribe. Interestingly enough, guess the tribes of the names of Caleb and Joshua who didn't agree with the rest of the others. What were the two, two, two tribes that they came from? Well, Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. And Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim. Some fascinating things happen here in verse 16. In fact, here's what's interesting. If you, if you just read through this text, you'll miss it. Moses, uh, Moses does something here that is very interesting. He actually renames, if you will, Hosea to Joshua. It's something that is common that you'll find in the Old Testament. And one of the things that I wanted to make sure that you, know, you and I kind of paid attention to here is the, the meaning from the first one was desire for salvation. And the meaning for Joshua is the Lord is salvation. So it's interesting the, the change, if you will, in the name. Listen to what one rabbi comments on this text. Listen to this. It says, according to Talmud, Moses suspected that the scouts would rebel, those are the spies, and this is why he changed Joshua's name. Moses was trying to grant his beloved pupil divine protection. The idea that a change of name can protect a person from harm is still prevalent in Judaism, where ritual name changes are often done for people who are ill or in danger. I don't know if you knew that. According to the Talmud, Moses changed Joshua's name because he felt that his young pupil was in danger. Although it is possible that Moses was simply worried that his young attendant could get captured or killed during his conquering of enemy territory or spying out the land, the Talmud suggests that Moses has an inkling that something terrible is about to happen with the behavior of the scouts themselves. This may even be why he chooses Joshua for this mission in the first place. He needs at least one person whom he trusts on this mission. It's very fascinating when you read some of the writings regarding this. In fact, Joshua is from the tribe of Ephraim, the younger son of Joseph. The least of all the tribes, if you will. Because remember, Joseph 
had two half-tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And here's what's interesting. It's almost, it's almost as if God is telling us something by saying, the last shall be first. Joshua then becomes the leader later on in Israel. I don't think we take seriously enough the fact that God has called us saints. I don't think we as believers have taken seriously the fact that we are no longer identified by sin. We are, we are identified by a Savior. And we are in His holiness. I think we tend to miss the fact that we now have a new identity. And sadly what happens to many of us is we find our old identity so wretched that we tend to find ourselves constantly thinking, maybe I'm still that. Maybe I'm still that sinner who is not worthy of grace. And you're correct in that assessment. But you are no longer through that lens if you have Christ. You are not looked at through that lens if you have the righteousness of Christ applied to your account. And that's one of the things that's really devastating for many of us as believers is that we tend to find our performance becoming our identity. If performance became identity, then, then the other way around also works in other religious systems that are apart from Christ. Imagine if, you will, that Christ did not have to suffer. He did not have to die. He did not have to come to this earth to redeem sinful man. What would we be left to? Our performance. Well, we know how that works. Any of us that are as honest with who we are, we know that our performance would never be enough. And here as we see Moses giving Joshua a new, a new name, if you will, we've been given new names. We've been given the title saint. And I think we as believers need to take those things seriously and stop looking at ourselves through a lens that is in our past rather than looking at what God is doing for us in glory later on. We have Christ that we are to identify with. We are not to identify with death and sin because we've been freed from that. And that's one of the things that is so hard sometimes for us to fathom is that just because we perform a certain way does not mean that God does not deem us worthy because of Christ. Because that's the qualifier. The qualifier is not you and me. The qualifier is grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. And you and I are identified in that, not in our performance. So as we look at what's going on here in this text, realize we have something so much better than what Moses just did for Joshua. And be aware of that. I think believers, we just tend to kind of float through life sometimes in, in our Christianity and find those things to be casual. We don't care as much about them. It mattered a lot more to us when we first were saved. But believer, you have a new identity. Live in that identity. Stop living in your past. Stop living in the old you. There's a new one that Christ is creating right now. You're his workmanship. And he's ordained it in advance that you should be walking in the image of Christ. And that one day you will one day be like him. And you'll actually see him for who he is as well. That's the, that's the hope that we have, even in this crazy, chaotic world that we have today. Number two, we're going to look at here, the instruction, verses 17 through 20. Look at the text, it says, Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So here's what's interesting, is that these men were to investigate and make sure that they understood the landscape of the land. And here's what's interesting about this, this point. This land had already been promised to them in advance. This land had already been promised to Abraham many many years prior. And what they're doing is they're actually spying out the land to see 
whether or not, if you will, those things are so, and the things that God had promised of a land flowing milk with honey, milk and honey, is exactly what he stated it to be. So here's, here's something to, to make note of. They needed to see what kind of land, the kind of protection they, would, they might have to face there, and also what the people were like. Uh, and even bring back some evidence, if you will. So Moses actually tells them to bring back some evidence. Uh, there's not a lack of practical application for a spiritual promise. Just because God divinely promised something does not mean that there's not divine, divine uh, providence that works through practical means. Just because God protects us does not mean that you and I shouldn't wear seatbelts, if you will. You know, does not mean that we should not follow certain procedures that are laid out for our health and well-being. And I think we need to be very careful that sometimes we, we tend to, if you will, apathetically look at our faith and say, ah, it's not a big deal, God's going to take care of it. And God has some practical things he wants us to do as well. There are things that you and I need to be doing proactively ourselves in order for us to apply God's word properly. You know, be careful with statements like let go and let God. Okay, be very careful with those kind of statements. It isn't one of those things where you just let God do everything, but you're not in his word. It doesn't work that way. You need to be plugged into the word, and you need to apply the word. And not just be hearers of the word, as scripture says, but doers as well. Too often we know what to look for, but we don't come up with the same conclusions others do. If we were to look at the same situation, you may have one believer sees one thing, and another believer sees another. Why is that? Well, the reason that's, that's the case many times is because some of us are looking through the lens of Scripture, and some of us are looking through a worldly lens, and we're not realizing it. And what tends to happen is we struggle internally in whether our analysis is accurate or not. How many of you have ever questioned something you've seen? You've looked and said, hey, I'm not sure that's what it is. And as you've investigated and searched a little deeper, you realize your first assessment was incorrect. How many of you have ever been wrong the first time on anything? Many a times, many times. And, and, and when we're wrong, we, we don't typically want to admit we're wrong. How, how many of you have ever done this? Maybe I'm the only one that's ever done this, probably. Uh, we, we actually take a situation, we prejudge the situation, we're wrong about the prejudgment, but then we act like we didn't actually judge it that way the first time. Anybody ever do that? Like, we, didn't, we really didn't see it that way the first time. You know, like, this whole thing, you know, with the pandemic that everybody's talking about, we saw it a certain way, and then, oh, well, maybe it's not exactly what we thought it was going to be. Maybe I shouldn't have posted that on Facebook. You know, maybe I shouldn't have posted this article. Maybe it's different than what people are saying. And we need to be careful. I mean, I can't tell you the, the amount of times I, I, I literally almost posted so many, so many things on Facebook and just deleted it. I was like, Lord, I can't. I can't. I don't, I don't even know that this is going to be helpful to anybody. It's going to be me ranting without any knowledge. So I, I don't know that that would be pastoral, if you will. Um, one of the things that's interesting, too, is the question is, do we pay attention to the instruction we've been given, or do we sort of kind of wing it in our spiritual walk? You know, do, do we kind of just kind of go through life and go, ah, you know, I, got, I, I, I know the basics. That should get me by. Um, this is spiritual warfare. You know, and, and I think that we as believers, we tend to, to think that we're, we're almost fighting, if you will, with, you know, plastic swords. You know, it, it's not a big deal. You know, we'll get hurt a little bit, but it's fine. Uh, there's, there's serious things at stake. Uh, this, is a, this is a spiritual problem that goes deeper than just the physical realm that we live in. And many times what we do is, is we walk sort of kind of winging it in our spiritual walk and wondering why we're not having victory. And we think that we're going to just get back up, we'll be all right, you know, brush it off, pull myself on my bootstrap, bootstraps, I'll be fine tomorrow, and we fall again. And we wonder why we keep falling, because we're not in God's Word. God's Word is what's going to anchor us. And, and, and spending time with Him in prayer. 
Those are the things that are going to anchor us. You're not going to be anchored by, you know, a cute story that you read online that gives you an emotional high for two seconds and then it's done. You're going to have motivation. You're going to have, if you will, real vitality in your spiritual walk if you're in the Word and spending time with God. Because He's the one that knows more than you and I do. And if we're constantly trying to, if you will, look at this world through our own lens without looking at it through the Scripture, we're going to constantly be off. We're going to be off in our analysis. And as Moses gives the instruction, we need to follow the instruction ourselves. There are certain things that God wants us to see in the landscape of life and we need to pay attention to. And if we're not looking at it through his eyes, we're going to constantly be off in our focus. Look at the third thing, though, here that we see. The investigation. Verses 21 through 25. Verses 21 through 25. Look at this. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the wilderness of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron, Ahiman, Shishai, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Then they came to the valley of Eskel, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. And they also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eskel, because the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after forty days." The spies went out and actually looked for 40 days to check and see how Hebron looked. In fact, here's what's interesting. This is exactly the same place that Abraham built an altar to the Lord after him and Lot had a disagreement. And God promises him descendants as the sands on the seashore, if you will. And here's what's interesting. Go to Genesis chapter 13. This connection is fascinating. Genesis 13 verses 14 through 18. Genesis 13, verses 14 through 18. And it says, The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for the land which you see I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by Terebinth, trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So Israel's literally going right back to the place of promise, where God makes this amazing, incredible promise to Abraham. In fact, the spies are literally, if you will, becoming a literal fulfillment of that promise. Remember, at this time, the nation had grown to over 2 million people. So they are literally, the promise that God had made to Abraham is literally being fulfilled. This is Israel, who has grown to a massive nation that is now spying out the land that God promised Abraham centuries earlier. They even brought back solid evidence that the land was as promised by bringing back a large cluster of grapes, pomegranates, and figs. So here's my question to you, believer. Has God not made promises to us? And do you not see certain evidences of them in your life? You see, your children are an evidence of God's promise to you. Your house, the very house you live in, is an evidence of God's promise that he would always take care of you. This church is an evidence of God's promise This is the thing that I think really stuns most of us is that we don't realize the promises each and every day we live in 
because we're constantly looking for something beyond what God has already promised us. And we don't thank him for the things he's already given us. And we always want more, just like our children do. That's why I think God calls us children, because we act like that. Right? More. More. I just gave this to you. I don't want that. I want something else. Why? Why do we do that? Why is that the normal response for most of us? That we don't take God's word in and are grateful for the things that he's promised us and delivered on. God has given us so many precious promises and we're constantly looking towards something else rather than him. Why are we looking for others to solve the promises that God has given to us? In your marriage, your spouse cannot take the place of God. They can't fulfill his promises, if you will, for you. They can fulfill them in certain ways, but they can't fulfill the full bastion of promises that God promises to those that walk humbly before him. There are too many things that we take for granted because we're not in the word and letting the word speak to us. And sadly, a lot of Christians don't even know God's promises because they're not reading them. The only reason why some of us only know a few of them is because those are the only ones that we've ever quoted or heard somebody else quote. There are many promises that you and I probably are not aware of simply because we haven't even read them. And that's the tragedy in the church today is that we have so many things that people like to quote and those are not the only promises. Those are not the only promises. In fact, if you were to, if you were to take the time and really look at the Beatitudes and the blessing that, that comes with walking before God, you're going to see certain promises there that God lays out to those that are walking upright, those that hunger after righteousness, those that are meek. In fact, Moses is, is regarded as the meekest man that ever lived. You know, you, you kind of struggle with that when you see when he gets angry at times. But that's the text of the scripture that tells us that that's who he is. You see, he cares for us and he wants us to rest in him. Christ, Christ came so that we would find our rest in him. And I always think of the text when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. People think that Christ is here to make their world harder. In some cases, it might be through persecution harder, but it's actually better because it's easier walking with him. It's better walking with a Savior than it is on your own. And we as Christians need to realize that we're not on our own. Even when we seem to be on our own, we have a Savior who's there, and He cares. And He cares so much for us that He's given us even more than He gave this nation of Israel in giving them this promised land. Because even though they were right there on the precipice of being able to enter the promised land, things happened that negated their entrance. In fact, number four, the apprehension. Look at verses 26 through 33. 26. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The, city, the cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell on the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are able to overcome it. 
But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in, their own, in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. So the people here are terrified and complain, ultimately, once again, that they are not able to do it. There's an apprehension here that happens. Yes, it's great. Yes, the land looks beautiful. Look at this big cluster of grapes who came back. God is not lying. It's definitely amazing. But we can't do it. We can't. Not going to do it. We can't stand a chance here. You see, they show the evidence by showing the incredible fruit that's brought in, but then have apprehension in in this whole situation. They stop and go, but I don't know if we can do that. Caleb tries to put it in perspective and says, no, let's go. Let's go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. But he gets shut down quickly by the majority apprehensive spies that compare the people to little grasshoppers in the eyes of giants. You see, how many times have we ever done this? I don't know if you've ever done this in your life. That would be great. Yeah, that would be awesome. God promises this. If we do these things, that these things will happen. He promises certain blessings for certain things that we do. It'd be great, but I don't know about me. There's no way that would happen in my life. There's no way that that would happen in our church. There's no way that we could really reach our community. I mean, haven't you seen kind of what we've been doing? There's no way. We have the same apprehension, don't we? We know God's promises. We see clearly what his word says, and we go, I don't know. I'm not sure. Isn't it much easier to just doubt what you can't do? I mean, at the end of the day, it's much easier to go, eh, I quit. I give up. It's not worth it. What am I even doing this for? It's much harder to look at it in courage and go, you know what, I'm going to face this and we're going to get this. Because God promised us. How many of us as parents, when we pray for our kids, pray with the faith that we ought to? How many of us, when we have loved ones that are unsaved, we pray with faith asking God to break their heart of stone? How many of us take the opportunity to go reach them and don't qualify that opportunity by saying, I'm not sure it's going to work this time. I mean, after all, they've kind of rejected it every time we've talked. Have courage. Where's our courage? You have to understand, Caleb and Joshua were the minority here. The majority opinion is, yes, it's great. Yes, it's wonderful. God has promised us this. We can't do it. We don't have a chance. We are small compared to these giants. If you think that God can't use just a few men and women that are faithful to him to change the world, then you have not read read this text properly. Caleb and Joshua later on are in places of leadership in the promised land. Those two men got something these others didn't because they gave up and quit. And there are certain things where I don't, I don't go to the extreme of anything, breaking, praying for a breakthrough, but ultimately there are certain things you and I need to persevere on. 
And we just stop quitting so quickly. Some of us want to quit too quick on the things that we have that are really big things that God wants for us later on. And we struggle going, I can't do this. I'm not capable. And you know what? You're absolutely right. You can't. He can. And he will if you trust his word. But if you trust it in good old me, it isn't going to go anywhere. And you're going to have fear and doubt constantly creep, creep up in your life. You either have this nasty, narcissistic, I can do all things in life, nobody can stop me mentality, or you're going to have this doubting, everything's horrible, there's no way I have a chance mentality. And there's only one that you should have, not me, but Christ in me. You and I can't do it. We don't have that capacity in and of ourselves. That is the reason why we were spiritually dead. It's fascinating to me that Scripture already had the walking dead figured out before the show came out. All right? Ephesians 2. Look at it. We were the walking dead. And we were given life. Why we want to live like that anymore is beyond me. Because we still want to do that. We're spiritually alive. We have hope. Christians that are miserable through these kind of times that we're living in should be the ones with the most hope. And as Lloyd-Jones says, a, a Christian who does not live in hope is a poor representation of the gospel. You have hope. Why do we freak out so easily? Isn't your eternity sealed? Why are you scared? Why am I scared? Because we doubt, based on the circumstances, that we can make it through. You and I believe we can bank on God's promises, but we get frightened into thinking we don't have a chance because we're not looking at it in faith but in doubt. Those promises are something we need to live out in faith, not live out in doubt. Number five, the termination, verses 26 through 37 of chapter 14. This is dealing with the same people that made the statement to the nation of Israel. And you see Moses had to intercede for the people once again. But here we find the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my, in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered, according to your entire number, from 20 years old and above, except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun, you shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. But your little ones whom you said would be victims, <laughs> interesting that, Jesus, uh, that God makes this statement here, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. I'm going to prove something to your children here. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and your sons shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, forty days for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die." 
Now the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a report, bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, remained alive of the men who, spy, who went to spy out the land. The termination here is a stunning rebuke to the lack of faith. The people all are terrified and complain again. It's kind of a pattern, if you will. And Moses pleads with God once again for them. And God marks all 20 years of age and older will not enter the promised land but die in the wilderness. What's a cutoff line? The exception, Joshua and Caleb. The punishment was wandering in the wilderness for 40 years and some of those that were spies terminated by plague. Apropos for our time. One year for each day they spied. How would you like it if your lack of faith in one day turned into a year of judgment? One day, a year of judgment. You see, here's the stunning thing. Most people don't realize some of us have one mistake we make that costs us more than a year's worth of judgment. There are certain things that you and I do that really brings dishonor to God and we don't realize the devastating effect long term. You see, most of us, when we take a look at the scripture, we take a hard look at others and a soft look on ourselves. And what I mean by that, the consequences will happen to others probably, not so much with me. That person, they're not going to walk in with God. They're just, it's not going to happen to me. It won't, it, it won't happen to that extent. It'll happen to them, but it won't be my marriage that'll suffer like theirs. It won't be my family that goes to the same thing that family's going through. It won't be my job that's lost like that person's losing their job. And in all of those things, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that we have arrived in a place of immunity, if you will, from judgment. Well, eternal judgment, we're correct on. Absolutely. If those of us, if we're in Christ, there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. There is discipline, though. And it was interesting, one of the things that, you know, I noticed we were talking about this in, in discipleship group this last week. One of the things that's fascinating is that discipline and punishment is mentioned to the nation of Israel. Both are mentioned to God's people. And I think the thrust many times for us is chastisement, discipline, instruction. And we don't realize that sometimes there really is punishment attached. And, and, and the struggle here is that we have, we have a nation of Israel that's constantly complained, repented, said we'll do it, we'll do right next time. Complained, repented, we'll do better next time. It's just this cycle that keeps going. Constantly repeating. And they get to the precipice of entering the promised land and guess what happens? Can't do it. We can't. We just can't pull it off. We don't typically connect the dots in our disobedience to other areas in our lives. Because we kind of like to think that we're Joshua and Caleb in this story, right? Most of us kind of want to think that we're Joshua and Caleb. I'm living in faith. I've got this whole thing figured out. Who are we really? 
Are we Joshua and Caleb in the story? Or we tend to be the ten spies that went, nah, I don't know, God, I don't know if you really could bless our church like this if I went out, went out on a limb and shared the gospel to this person. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we could do that. I don't really know that we could reach our community. I mean, look at how small we are. Are we living in faith or in doubt? Because I tend to think that we are probably more like the ten spies than we'd like to admit many times. And, and, and as a pastor, I, I, I've been really convicted about this. I believe with all my heart, God can grow his church and he will grow his church if we follow his plan. It is not up to us. What is up to us is to be obedient. It's not questioning whether he'll do something. He promised he will. As he tells Peter, the gates of hell will not stand against the church. Okay? It can't. The gospel breaks through chains. It pierces the darkness. Why are we so scared? Why do we live in so much fear as believers? We have only one to fear, and that's God. Why are we fearful of everything else? As, as Jesus says, we're precious to him. If God cares for the sparrows, he's going to care for us. He will. Believer, he's more concerned for you than you are for yourself. Think of that one again. He's more concerned for us than we are for ourselves. But I'm so glad that the story doesn't end there. We have this small verse here. In verse 38, the preservation. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. So much can be said in this one verse regarding the preservation. You and I remain physically alive because God has decided to give us breath in our lungs. You and I will not be faced with the same exact mission that Joshua and Caleb have, but we have a mission from someone even greater, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. These two men and what they did in their mission is nothing in comparison to the mission that God has called us to. This is a promise that was given to them of a physical land that they were going to dwell in. We have an eternal home waiting for us that does not go away. Nothing can steal that from us. We have a mission from Christ himself to share the good news that Jesus saves from sin and preserves us. The message of the gospel is so vital in sharing, not just for the preservation of others, but for our own, our own preservation as well. Believer, you still need the gospel message today. You didn't just need it 20 years ago, 15 years ago. You need it today. Why are you over it? Why am I over it? If you were on death row and someone took your place, oh, you would live differently. And if you were set free completely. Yet we don't understand that transaction that was made on our behalf. We were guilty before God. Guilty, condemned. And Jesus steps in our place, innocent, not worthy of any of that, and says, let them go. I'm taking their place. I'm taking their punishment. 
We live so ungrateful. It's like it doesn't matter that Jesus did all that. It's almost as if we think we deserved it, that we don't declare that directly. The gospel message, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for sinners is a message we need to urgently still share today. That's more important than any of the posts regarding this pandemic. There's something inside every man and woman that's killing them. And they're already dead and they don't realize it. It's called sin. There's a real eternity at stake. There are real people that are headed to hell. There's a God who's merciful, who provided a way. And you and I have that opportunity to share it, and we don't. You see, we can do all sorts of spiritual activity, but not be spiritually alive. You can kind of do the stuff, you know, do the church thing. Do the pray sometimes thing. And not be spiritual alive. So, here's a question. How can we know if we're spiritual alive? In fact, Scripture actually makes a statement in Romans. It says, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God. God clearly demonstrates that to His own, that, they're, they're, that they are His children. Not a single one of us in here that can confirm status of saint or sinner directly ourselves. That is something confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And that confirmation is typically done when we love God and we want to share the word with others. In fact, Spurgeon made a statement. He says, if a person does not want to share the gospel, he may not be saved himself. You can't help but want to share the good news. You can't help but want, want to make Christ known. The majority of the world's population wants the good things God provides without repentance of sin. The best thing for all of us is to walk humbly before him and realize he has provided the remedy already for us in Christ, the one and only Savior of the world. So in conclusion, I'm going to close with this. Number one, what does your relationship with God look like? Have you trusted the finished work of Christ on the cross? Have you been walking with him daily by spending time with him in prayer and reading of his word? I would love to talk to anybody that needs help in these areas. I think it's important that we share the gospel message to those around us. But if we don't have the gospel stirring in our heart, we need to be, if you will, reevaluated. And we need God to do that work in us. God already knows who we are. We need a reevaluation for ourselves. If you're struggling with your walk in Christ, please message us. Please talk to us. We want our church to be spiritually vital. Have a spiritual vitality, if you will. Strong. Number two, how are you doing in the mission of the gospel? You see, believer, we have hope to offer the world. I don't know why we are afraid when our eternity is secure. Why? Why are we so scared? We have freedom. We have hope. Listen to this text in, in the New Living Translation. We read it 
uh, from our Bible reading, but I want to read this, this text from the New Living Translation, if you will. Verses 7 through 18. The old way which with laws etched in stone led to death, though it began with such a glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. For his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. Shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new way, now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way which brings condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? In fact, the first glory was not glorious at all compared with the overwhelming glory of the new way. So if the old way which has been replaced was glorious, how much more glorious is the new which remains forever? Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel could not see his glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. But when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Let's pray. Father, we hesitate many times to do the things that you've called us to because we don't believe we have a chance against the things that are facing us. And Father, I know that we tend to look at our personal abilities and realize how, how much we fall short in living up to the potential that you have for each and every one of us in our spiritual walk. But Father, I ask this morning that we would be reminded of the faith of Joshua and Caleb to move forward in courage in faith rather than living in doubt. And we ask this morning that you would bless each and every one of us and give us opportunities to minister to others the ministry of the gospel. We thank you for the glorious hope that we find in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. 